0: So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our journey in the Word. But we ignore the things that are us, that we're doing.
1: Now, look, I'm not saying we're losing our salvation. This is not our pattern. Maybe we're just in a season where we're just not paying attention to what the Lord's Spirit is speaking to us. But these are wrong for us. This should not indicate us. It's a work of the flesh. But wait a minute, Pastor Randy. Don't we have a spiritual responsibility to call sin, sin? Aren't there times when we simply need to confront people with the reality of their sin and where it will lead if they continue in it? Of course we do. (laughs) Of course we do. But we also have this mandate from Scripture as to how we're to do that. We're told Paul writes in Colossians 4, verses 5 and 6, Colossians 4, verses 5 and 6 Walk in wisdom. Where does wisdom come from? From the Lord, right? From the Spirit working in us. The same Spirit that produces this fruit, I read, the good fruit, long suffering, kindness, gentleness, self control. From the Spirit, walk in wisdom toward those who are outside. Who are those outside? The unsaved, those that don't know the Lord, those who have are out there doing the crazy stuff you see happening, or your neighbor who could care less, just wants to get drunk on the weekends and party. To those outside, redeeming the time. Listen, now verse 6, he goes on, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Hear what he said? Let your speech, speech where? Not in church. Yeah, it should be there too. But your speech to these people who he just talked about, those who are outside that you're redeeming the time of, seeking the wisdom from the Lord on how to respond, he says, let your speech always be seasoned with grace. Grace is not the compromising of truth. Or the ignoring of truth, that very always takes them to extremes. It's not that. It's not the ignoring or the compromising of truth, but it's truth being shared with hope given. Truth being shared with hope given, a desire to see the change, a belief that change can occur if they'll just listen. Salt. Salt. Season with salt. Salt can serve a lot of purposes. It can create thirst. It can preserve. It can cleanse. And all three of these purposes get worked out when we speak truth with grace. Truth spoken with grace can work to create a thirst in people for more truth. Truth spoken in grace preserves the truth being spoken in the heart of the hearer. Truth spoken in grace can cleanse the infection that's being addressed. It might sting at first, But if applied in the right way, it can bring about cleansing and ultimately healing. And in Ephesians 4.15, we're given one more important way where to communicate with people. Verse 15 of Ephesians 4 says, But speaking the truth in love, speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into him who is the head Christ. Speaking the truth in love means faithfully speaking the truth, but speaking it with patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control and with the intent of helping, not destroying. You know, the the fruit of the Spirit is not plural. It's not the fruits of the Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And it begins by saying the fruit of the Spirit is love. And then it goes into the rest of the list. And I believe the reason it does that is because love is the fruit but the rest is just the characteristics, the different aspects of love, patience, faithfulness, kindness, gentleness, self-control. It all comes out of love. Love, speaking the truth in love, means faithfully speaking the truth, but speaking it with all of these aspects in play. Truth spoken without love is a terribly blunt and damaging, even destroying sword in the hands of the user. But truth Spoken with love is a sharp surgical scalpel that has the potential of bringing healing by getting right to the root cause, cutting out in a way that the person doesn't even realize that the surgery is happening. See, this is what Jesus did this is what he did. He spoke openly and directly to people about their sinful lives. But as this passage reveals, he did it as we're commanded to do it, speaking with grace and in a way that it was seasoned with salt, and yet most certainly out of a heart of love that he had for even the worst of sinners. You know, I personally believe that so much of our communication about sin is not like this. I believe much of our communication with people is being driven by our flesh and not by the Spirit who always reflects Jesus. And that, my brothers and sisters, is a big and grievous mistake when we're not reflecting the heart of Jesus, but we're reflecting our flesh. We don't need to compromise truth, nor should we ever compromise truth but we do need to speak the truth in the way that Jesus did it, with grace, salt, and love. Jesus knew how to use that sharp scalpel and not the blunt sword because he wanted to heal people. He didn't want to destroy people. And we need to follow his lead. And and so having read from the Scriptures and spoken to the people, Luke now goes on to describe the various responses of the people. In fact, he describes here, whether you know it or not, two very conflicting responses first response all bore witness to him and marveled in other words their first response was one of true amazement they were blown away by what he was saying they they recognized that what he was saying was graciously powerful and different and it was spoken with authority and and his words were impacting them and they were quick to acknowledge that but then the next response is this not Joseph's son <laughs> this statement whether you know it or not, is actually a statement of doubt and skepticism. It's their, what they're saying is, "Who is this guy to be talking to us like this?" This is Joseph's boy. This is the carpenter. What in the world would ever make him think he's anybody or in such a position to talk to us like this? Where he's getting all this from, anyways? We have to ask. How could people respond in these two? completely opposite ways so quickly. Simple. The first message, or rather the first response was a response to the message and not the messenger. It was a response to the messenger and not uh, the message and not the messenger. What Jesus was saying and how he said it resonated with the people. It made sense spiritually. It blessed them and it refreshed them. It was different than the teachings that they were hearing from the, the religious leaders. There was authority behind his words. But the second response then kicked in because they stopped listening to the message and started looking at the messenger. They stopped listening to what he was saying and started to look at him personally. And as as he was speaking, they began analyzing Jesus, the man, rather than keeping their focus on what he was saying, which revealed the heart of God within. They were looking at the externals, the preconceived notions they had about him, And it triggered a completely different response, a response that ultimately caused them to reject the powerful message that he was delivering to them in that very moment. You know, Mark in his account of this moment in his gospel specifically tells us that this was what the people did. It says in verse 3 is this in Mark chapter 6 in verse 3 is this not the carpenter the son of Mary and brother of James Joseph Judas and Simon and are they not his sisters here with us so they were offended at him Mark plainly tells us what was happening here I, I, even though only a moment ago they marveled at what Jesus had to, had to say they quickly shifted their focus and began to look at more at who he was or rather, who they knew him to be. Jesus the townie, Jesus the homeboy, Jesus the son of Joseph. And they were offended at him when they did that. Offended literally means to put a stumbling block or impediment in the way upon which another may trip or fall, to cause a person to begin to trust one whom he ought to trust and obey. And this is exactly what began to happen, because they started looking at wrong things about him, At the preconceived notions they held about him, they began to distrust the one they should have trusted in and obeyed. They reduced Jesus to the ordinary, reducing him to their level instead of letting their view of him rise to his level and seeing him for who he really was. Sadly, that's the response to Jesus. Even today, it still happens. People see Jesus as they want to see him and not as he is. And man's view of Jesus is always at their level, not his. Men will always reduce Jesus to seeing him from who they are, rather than seeing him for who he is and rising to his levels, seeing him in context of themselves. And in the process of doing that, it causes them not to receive him as they should. Sadly, it also happens to people who Jesus has sent out as his servants, all of us. Granted, no man is God in the flesh, and, and Jesus was and, ne- and should never be seen in, in the same way, or at least we shouldn't be seen in the same way as Jesus, but Jesus has chosen and sent people to represent him and to give his message of hope and salvation to others. You and I are ambassadors for him. It's what we've all been called to do. And oftentimes, in the same way that the people responded to Jesus, people respond to us in the same way. They they know us for who we are and what we've been. Now, look, I'm not suggesting or even implying that, that people shouldn't evaluate our lives as we would come representing God to them and evaluating our message in light of, of the messenger and things that matter, things that are scriptural But what I am saying is that oftentimes the evaluation people make of us has nothing to do with the scriptural. It has to do with what they know about us or how they know us or what they remember. And that kind of unbiblical evaluation of the messenger will cause people to reject what it is that we're bringing to them. But at the same time, we shouldn't be surprised we're in good company because Jesus was rejected like this because people saw him in this way. Well, let's go on. He says in verse 23, He said to them, You will surely say this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. And so with this statement, Jesus is simply revealing how he knows their skepticism about him, saying that they're going to want him to prove himself, to, to, to do a miracle for them. Do a miracle for us, Jesus, so we can see that you're really the son. But they're, but they're doing out of skepticism, not out of some level of faith. There's no indication that anyone has specifically asked Jesus to do this yet, but Jesus seems to be prophetically revealing that he knows that this is in their hearts, and that eventually they're going to demand this of him, and it's going to be a request that will be made from a terribly wrong and impure motive, a motive of skepticism and doubt, rather than a sincere desire to know. You know, it's not necessarily wrong for anyone to ask the Lord to do a miraculous work, or to reveal himself, or to validate something for us, but there is a difference between that kind of request and the request that has skepticism and unbelief at its very core. It's a legitimate request when its purpose is to strengthen faith that already exists to some degree, but it's completely wrong when it's asked in order to disprove or invalidate any reason to believe. These people didn't want Jesus to do miracles to prove himself because they had some level of belief in him already. They didn't. But what they wanted him to do was to prove himself because they didn't believe, nor did they want to believe. And there are people like this in our world today. It's just the truth. But apart from some level of true faith, you will never see or experience the true power of God. Maybe you're out there today and you are a skeptic and you're demanding for Jesus to prove himself. Well, you know, out of his grace, he might do that. But the likelihood of you seeing him do something powerful, it's not very high. Because what you're trying to dis, you're trying to disprove. You're not trying to prove him, you see. <laughs> you know, Jesus will, or, or John will later record about Jesus in his hometown in John 12, 37. And it'll tell us, but although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. See, they didn't, they didn't want to believe in him. It didn't matter even though miracles came along. Look, if, if there's not some level of faith or belief, miracles performed will prove nothing to someone who has no desire to exercise faith or to believe. He goes on in verse 24, and he says, Then he said, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. Jesus now states the truth that while it's not universal, it sure does have a lot of true application to real-world responses. This statement is similar to our English statement, familiarity breeds contempt. And that's the idea behind what's happening here. Familiarity has bred contempt for Jesus by his fellow Nazarites, as uh, Nazarenes, rather, as it oftentimes does with those of us, you know, by those who knew us. <laughs> the people were way too familiar with Jesus, and because they were familiar with him, they couldn't get out of their heads and minds the Jesus they knew from the Jesus he really was. They were too close. He was too familiar. And that became a stumbling block to their belief in him. They had preconceived notions that that they could not overcome. They had expectations of him that they could not overcome. They had understandings about him that while they may have been true, they were limiting things that they could not overcome about who he actually was. I get this. I get this. You know, I grew up in a town where everybody knew everybody and in a town which a good percentage of the people I was probably related to. And, and they always knew me as a good kid and even a religious kid. But in lots of ways, that became a detriment when I did come to a full understanding of Jesus and was truly born again. Although the the, the way many related to me wasn't based on negative things, they couldn't relate to what I was saying to them about who I became in Christ because they kept filtering it all through their understanding of who I was. Ultimately, that caused a lot of them to reject the truth of the gospel that I was trying to share to them and the witness that I was bringing to them because they preferred the other things that they associated me with. They preferred me being the, the practically good kid or the religious kid that they had known because it was a form of morality and religion that wasn't determined by God but was being determined by me. And that form of morality and religion enabled them to be the determiners of their own spiritual standing. But this born-again, this Jesus conversion thing was different. And my yielding to it made them uncomfortable because it had implications for their lives as well. Many wanted me to be who they always knew me to be and not be who I became. Familiarity truly bred contempt. This was true even in my relationship with my mom. You know, familiarity ultimately bred contempt as she had a very difficult time receiving what I had become and what I was sharing with her because none of it fit the narrative she would developed about me over the years of knowing me as I grew up. So I get it. And I hope you do, too. Don't get discouraged when people closest to you reject you and the message that you're bringing to them about Christ and who he is and what he's done in your life. Don't get discouraged and take it personally when they reject what you've become and and continue to become through your faith in him. You're in good company. And I don't mean in company with me. I mean, you're in good company with Jesus. Keep in mind, the scriptures are going to tell us that even Jesus' family members don't accept him for who he eventually revealed himself to be. His brothers and sisters didn't acknowledge him until he hung on that cross and was resurrected again. (laughs) So don't get discouraged. You're in good company. And like Jesus, you can know that this is a spiritual reality that will oftentimes play out. So hang in there and do like Jesus. Keep moving, keep sharing, keep praying, keep hoping, keep praying that they will someday see. I mean, my mom eventually did. And so did Jesus' family members and so may many of the people that you know, if you will not. Relent your witness to them, but don't be surprised by the rejection. Look at verse 25. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months. And there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman, the Syrian. And so Luke tells us that Jesus made one final and very direct, somewhat infuriating remark to these unbelieving fellow townies. This is an incredibly direct statement he's making here, a statement of absolute rebuke for their spiritlessness and their faithless way of thinking and responding. And as we'll see in a moment, they understood exactly what it was he was saying to them, and it really torqued them off. But what was Jesus saying here? Simply this. He's saying that in the same way that the people of Israel failed to receive Elijah and Elisha's powerful prophetic ministry for the Lord, even do with all the miracles that they displayed, since they rejected them, God then turned Elijah and Elisha around and sent them to the Gentiles instead. Sent Elijah to the widow in the region of Sidon. She was a Gentile. He sent Elisha to Naaman the Syria, to heal him of his leprosy. He was a Gentile. And these people got to enjoy and be blessed by the miraculous power of God that unbelieving Israel missed out on. He's telling them, right now he's telling them, be very careful that your unbelief is not leading you to the same end. I am here in your presence and you're rejecting me, just like Israel has always done. Be very careful it's not leading you to the same end of missing this blessing that I'm bringing. Wow. Wow. Well, you can imagine the response of his audience, but you don't have to imagine for long because you can read it. Look at verse 28. So all those in the synagogue, when they had heard these things, were filled with joy and repented. No, they were filled with wrath. And rose up and thrust him out of the city, and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. And passing through the midst of them, he went his way. Luke now tells us that this fired-up crowd that a couple of minutes ago was praising his message then started looking at him, then started hearing things he was saying to them that was challenging them. They drag him up this hill by force, and they're ready to throw him off the precipice of this mountain. But that didn't work out too good because he gave them a miracle. (laughs) They wanted a miracle. Here it is. He supernaturally walked right through the midst of them and went on to other places to minister. I'm sure that wasn't the kind of miracle they were looking for, but it was a miracle he had given them nonetheless. There's something important in this that we must not miss. Folks, this also reveals that Jesus' coming death of the cross would be a death that he would suffer, not by the hands of sinful men, but by his own will and choice. By his own will and choice. If the people could not take control to throw him off a cliff like this, neither could men take control to nail him on a cross that he didn't personally choose to be nailed to. The death that he would eventually suffer would be a death that he willingly chose to submit to himself. Why? Because it was necessary for our redemption, and Jesus came to the earth the first time for that very purpose. As Billy Graham once wrote in, Response to the choice Jesus made to die, he said, The real question I challenge you to face is this. Why did Jesus choose to die? Why didn't he escape as he easily could have done, I would add, as he we see him easily doing here in this passage, walking right through the crowds. The reason is, Graham writes, is because he knew he had come into the world for one reason, to become the final and complete sacrifice for our sins. We are separated from God because of our sins, and we deserve only God's judgment, but on the cross, Christ took upon himself the judgment we deserve. He gave his life for you, and may you respond by giving your life to him. Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 11, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us In John chapter 10, verses 17 through 18, recording Jesus' words, Therefore, my Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. Do you hear that? I lay down my life. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. This command I have received from my Father. Finally, in John 10, in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Yup. That's why he did it. That's why he did it. He didn't have to, but he chose to die. I say this because there are many today. I've heard it said, you know, hear the expression, the Romans crucified Jesus. The religious leadership took Jesus to the cross. The people had Jesus crucified. It's all true. It's all true. But they could not do what Jesus did not allow. Jesus was not forced to the cross. But out of love for you, out of love for me, out of his grace, he went. Of his own volition. He wouldn't let these men throw him off the cliff, because that isn't what he came for. There would have been no purpose in that. So he miraculously walked through them. When those guards taunted Jesus on the cross, when the rabbis taunted Jesus, well, where are your angels now? Call them all down. Surely they can deliver you. They were right. Surely he could have. And surely they would have. But he didn't. He did not. Because he willingly went to the cross. To lay down his life as a sacrifice for your sin and my sin to do exactly what he proclaimed in the beginning. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. That acceptable year is still being proclaimed.